Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series, hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab in the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and the New Books Network Partnership provide a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Lakshata Malik, and today I'm joined by Dr. Anastasia Pilyavsky, Senior Lecturer in Anthropology and Politics at, at King's College London. We are in conversation about her book, Nobody's People, Hierarchy as Hope in a Society of Thieves, published by Stanford University Press in 2020. We look forward to hearing from Dr. Pilyavsky. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Lakshita. I'm so happy to have you here. Um, this has been a long time in the making, and I am absolutely thrilled about this. So let's just jump into this. So my first question to you is, uh, how did the project get conceived? And how did the book uh, come to life? It's so rich in detail and ethnographic insight. And it seems like it's been a long time in the making. So uh, how, how, did you, how did you come to these questions of hierarchy? And, and how did you come to conceptualize this book, essentially? Thank you, Lakshita. Thank you for inviting me. It's uh, delightful to to talk about the book, which has indeed been a very long time in the making, even longer than our trying to um, meet each other to have this um, conversation. Now, uh, mine is really a classic ethnographer's tale. So I went out looking for one thing and I found something else. Um, And um, what I wanted to find out way back in 2008, really, when I first went out to do fieldwork in southern Rajasthan, was something quite simple-minded. Um, I'd beat around Rajasthan at that point for, for a while, and I've heard about robber castes. So people talked about communities that were professional thieves. Now, the scholarly literature on this, the historiography, said that um, robber castes were really a British um, colonial fiction, um, termed criminal tribes, a fiction that really attached itself to all kinds of nomadic communities, which had never really engaged in in thieving or crime, but were just nomads whom um, the colonial administrators were keen to settle, to pin down on a map, to tax, and so um, criminalize them. So quite simply, I really wanted to find out who held the truth, the people I talked to in Rajasthan or or the historians. Um, so um, I did end up quite saying quite a lot on the matter, both in the book and in other things I've written on so-called criminal tribes. But what really stunned me during fieldwork when I got to Rajasthan and when I came to this community of Kunters in a rural part of southeastern Rajasthan was less the matter of their um, robbing trade, but rather the fact that there was, um, um, but, but rather the significance that people attach, both the conjures themselves, but also their neighbors, to asymmetrical relations 
to relations with between people who gave and protected and people who served these people. So these relations I call patronage. Um, um, and people talked of patrons all the time. Um, this was just ubiquitous. Every single day, whether I was in the market square, at the court, in the village, um, people of all classes and castes spoke incessantly about patrons, patrons they had, patrons they'd lost, patrons whom they were hoping to win in favor. Um, they spoke of political patrons, of divine patrons, of good and bad patrons, and they also talked about being patrons themselves, and they boasted of their clientele. So, um, when I started going around town and asking people about their family and caste and uh, village histories, these were absolutely framed through accounts of patronage. Um, so local, established local, respected established local families showed off the fields and houses that they, their families had been granted by royal patrons in the past, which they said centrally established them as important families in the centre. Conjurers with whom I lived, on the other hand, had a completely different story, but also the other side of the same coin. They blamed their extremely marginal status. So conjurers are untouchables among untouchables. They're completely outside um, the social order, seen as um, lowest of the low, as it were or most extremely marginal, more, more precisely, um, they blamed their misfortune, their social misfortune, on the fact that they had lost patronage bond. All sorts of myths, um, all sorts of stories were told about how and why these bonds were severed, but the point was that that's, that was always pointed to as the cause of their sort of social failure. Also, the same types of stories um, of dissipation of paternal bonds um, are recorded by ethnographers all over India. So this wasn't quite, um, you know, but it really struck me um, as something that really, really mattered more than anything else. So um, everybody seemed to always want to have good ties with good patrons um, and also to be patrons themselves. Um, now, patronage is a fundamentally hierarchical relationship. It's hierarchical both ontologically and normatively, meaning um, it takes inequality or disparity as the basic condition of relations, as, the, as a basic fact of, of social relations. And it also treats, as this is more interesting and to my very socialist, egalitarian mind, very, very uh, striking and, and sort of... Um, puzzling at the time was the fact not only that they treated um, disparity or inequality as a fact of life, but also that they treated it as a normative um, value, right? Um, so inequality was, it, it both was, and it was good, right? Uh, so that was my original puzzle. Um, the reason that that was puzzling was both, as I said, I grew up in the Soviet Union um, with very Marxist parents. I grew up as a, um, a vocal egalitarian, and this, this was troubling to my moral imagination. But also, um, I really wanted to understand why people thought of um, inequality as a social good. Now, at that point, I'd obviously had been a graduate student and I'd read, you know, lots of anthropology of, of India. And, of course, the standing theory of hierarchy as a normative frame, not as a, as a synonym for inequality, right, but hierarchy as a system of values 
through which people frame their judgment and, and um, envision a better life, um, was really to do with purity and pollution, to which we'll hopefully return further on in our conversation. Now, the people I spent time with in Rajasthan said very little about pollution and purity. They were not interested in it. Um, some of them were not even Hindus, so they didn't really operate with the matrix of purity and pollution. So... Um, if hierarchy or this normative inequality wasn't about purity and pollution, and it was so important and central to people's lives, what is it that framed this idea? And the book ended up being um, a rather long-winded answer to that question. What if not purity and pollution? All right. Uh Thank you for that. That was that was a great introduction to the book. And and there's so many questions that come out of it, right? The specific question of hierarchy. And then there's this concept, this elusive concept of aspiration that you have taken up in your book. And I'm just wondering if you could get into what this... And we understand it largely. It's supposed to be self-evident what aspiration is. But clearly not when when hierarchy becomes the frame through which you understand mobility of any kind, and not that everybody is equal. How do you how do you understand uh, how do you understand aspiration in that context? And and I was wondering, and you sort of take up with this concept, a uh, Padurai's concept of uh, hegemonic aspiration, which has been taken up by many other scholars as well. How do you how do you sort of engage with this concept and what does what does that mean in relationship to how your interlocutors were viewing, you know, their relationships to patrons and them looking at themselves as patrons as well? Hmm. Um so in fact, the, the this phrase hegemonic aspirations appeared in um, in a piece by Leela Fernandez and Patrick Heller, and I don't think it's uh, Apadurai who who talked about that. Um, and so I I talked to that idea a bit, um, and in a sense, uh, I encountered a, a problem um, that's quite simple. Um, but also one that's very pervasive and very oddly riddles even some of the most sophisticated analyses of social life in South Asia, but not only in South Asia. This idea of a particular kind of aspiration, which we assume people of all kinds everywhere um, uh, espouse. So analysts tend to presume, of course there are exceptions, but this is a very, very deep trend. Um, Analysts tend to presume that everyone wants roughly the same kind of things. Education, higher education, educated jobs, wealth framed in a particular way and aimed for particular purposes, um, and first and foremost, to be treated um, as an equal to others, as the basic condition for, um, for reaching all of these things, right? Now, hierarchy um, has a really bad reputation, both in popular, you know, broad imagination, um, popular imagination in, um, you know, Euro-American and also sort of global middle classes. Um, And hierarchy is supposed to be anathema to all this. It's supposed to be a sort of system of stuckness, a sort of what I call a social permafrost, right? Um, where everybody is stuck in, this, in a kind of pyramid of rank and nobody's going anywhere. And there's not very much room for hope. What, what of course, I found in Rajasthan was that hierarchy was the basic condition for people imagining movement upwards. And in a very, very simple-minded sense, 
um, it's quite obvious that that should be the case because any movement um, it requires some sort of a differentiation. It, it requires a gradient. You can't um, move up on a plateau. <laughs> there needs to be a mountain, right? Although I don't like the metaphors of um, up and down and so on because I don't think they quite suit uh, what we're describing in most cases when we're talking about people moving toward different aims and not a single peak. Um, now, um, all of these education, educated jobs, uh, preferably jobs inside an office, uh, wealth, you know, that acquires you a house and so on and ability to travel and so on. Uh, all of these are very audibly and recognizably middle class aspirations, which have entered the conceptual vocabularies of the social sciences as sort of self-evident truths. Um, and these are what Leela Fernandez and Patrick Heller call hegemonic aspirations, right? It's a hegemony of a middle class vision of a better life. Now, conjures with whom I lived um, just didn't fit that mold at all. They often wanted entirely different things from life. So when they got money, they didn't build a house. They got five motorcycles. <laughs> um, they didn't invest in their children's educations. They didn't aspire to government jobs. Um, they didn't want development. Oftentimes they didn't want a road to lead to their um, settlement because they didn't want the police to get there fast. So, um, and but crucially, I mean, these are sort of fun facts um, of conjurers just laughing at NGO workers or, you know, condescending to NGO workers um, who came and earnestly and very um, kindly uh, wanted to bring conjurers into the mainstream fold and um, get them to stop drinking and eating meat and uh, to tend to fields and to acquire proper jobs and so on and conjurers didn't weren't having any of that but more seriously conceptually what i was seeing is that they didn't want to be treated like everybody else they didn't want to have equal rights equal treatment as humans who were like other humans what they wanted was actually the opposite they wanted to be special and yes parts of being special were had absolutely disastrous consequences for their lives but parts of them um uh, a part of being special also gave them a special place and role in society, uh, which was their um, um, their feeding, their breadbasket, right? And which is what they um, were proud of and what they aspired to. Um, and the broader point I want to make here when I'm talking about um, recognizing, registering very different kinds of aspirations, aspirations that might seem lewd to us, aspirations that might very much rub us, middle class readers of such books and writers of such books, um, rub us up the wrong way. The broader point I want to make is if we are going to be serious about decolonizing our analyses, there's a lot of talk about decolonizing analysis, but actually the walk goes off oftentimes in the opposite direction. We need to really take seriously people's hopes and dreams that do not sit comfortably with the middle class ideas of a good life, especially because I suspect that these people whose hopes and dreams don't sit comfortably with our own visions of a good life constitute a global majority. And we better start listening to them if we are to truly decolonize our thoughts. Right. No, thank you for that. Um, and a related question, of course, to this is the idea of dignity, which 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 has to come up, right, when you're talking about equality and especially looking at 
caste in India, you you have to that that question does come up, and you did engage with you do engage with that in your text, and um, you do make a very specific distinction between hierarchy and inequality as well. And yeah, I was just wondering if you could shed some light on what this, um, what engaging with this idea of dignity and and its relationship to equality and hierarchy in this case, uh, what does that mean? Um, Well, I think the story I tell in the book is in an important way, a story of a pursuit of dignity, right? Um, A pursuit by people who are in a very difficult position, um, who are... um, victims of violence who are who lack social recognition it's their pursuit of dignity or the condition of being worthy of respect and honor right or the uh, or being treated as a valued member of their society right so I show that in my ethnographic setting, hierarchy really forms the frame for this pursuit um, and it's the very condition that makes this pursuit possible um, now, of course, in the discourse of human rights, which currently it's the currently dominant global egalonormative frame, the idea of dignity has been perceived as an intrinsically and exclusively egalitarian sort of privilege, right? The right to worth that every human by virtue of being human has. That's how the idea of dignity has been. It's, it's become a very um, popular um, banding item, the, the the word dignity in um, moral philosophy recently. So there's quite a lot of writing about this now. Um, but some of the most interesting writing about this has um, come up in the writings of Jeremy Waldron, um, with whom I engage um, in, in the conclusion of the book. Now, um, my host in Rajasthan didn't think that everyone has equal worth. <laughs> And this was conjurers as well as their neighbors, pretty much everyone across the social um, scale. And what they thought is that worth attached itself to one's role and rank in society, to one's position. It's something that one earns rather than something that one inherits. It's something that everyone who plays the role that they're in is entitled to, not because they're generically human like everyone else, equal to others, but precisely on the contrary, because they're not like everyone else, because they're special, because they occupy a distinctive position, and because they're dignified in and by their distinctive place and role in society, right? Now, um, not so long ago, in European thought, uh, both popular thought and uh, scholarly imagination, dignity was also associated with hierarchy, not with equality at all. With um, having worth because of one's uh, distinctive standing, um, and this idea has been referred to as the dignity of rank. Right. So think of the word dignitary, for instance, in in English and other European languages, um, it's cognates in other European languages that still very much preserves the hierarchical sense of human worth. Right. But my broader argument here isn't to really put in question or doubt the soundness of the egalitarian conception of dignity, but rather to point out that this isn't the only way in which human worth is calculated and recognized, and to recognize that in non-egalitarian, anti-egalitarian hierarchical systems of of imagining um, a moral social life, of living together well, um, there is an idea of dignity that's central to them, which in the egalonormative frame, oftentimes hierarchical uh, moral social systems are um, imagined to have no um, place for dignity. 
And that I say is, is rather incorrect. <laughs> no, thank you for that. Um, I mean, closely, you cannot, and we you sort of briefly talked about this earlier, is this uh, question of purity and pollution. And that has had a long and long and it's entrenched in any discussion on caste in India. You cannot escape those terms. You go in as an undergraduate, Louis Dumas, you do homo hierarchicus. You, the, there's no escaping that. And, and it comes back to haunt you. It's, it's always haunting any study of caste in India. But you sort of distance yourself from that. And, and like you said, your interlocutors didn't even perhaps think in those terms and weren't talking in those terms at all. And how do you then, or what does your study then contribute? Like what, there's, there's the newness, right? You're talking about hierarchy in very different ways, not necessarily of this binary opposition between purity and pollution and they can't mix. And that's the thing driving it. But yeah. So how do you sort of uh, look at this? So, um, so first of all, um, I make a point of prizing caste and hierarchy apart. So caste, of course, has come to be seen um, as the most significant, vivid expression, famous expression of hierarchy in India's social life, right? But it's important to remember that, of course, hierarchical norms are present not only in relations between castes, but also far inside castes and also beyond intercaste relations. So between subcastes, between families, inside households, between husbands and wives, older and younger people, guests and hosts, gods, their devotees, politicians, their constituents. So all of these are very much construed. Um, hierarchical norms are central, not the only norms, but very, very important to framing all kinds of relations. So we begin with the idea that caste is not hierarchy and hierarchy is not caste, right? Um, now, when you talk of hierarchy as a normative frame in India, you can't avoid, as you said, this theory of purity and pollution, um, which is associated in the minds of many, um, both lay people and scholars uh, by habit, uh, with the Indian way of doing hierarchy. If you ask a first year student um or uh, indeed you know when we 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 have um we have discarded dumont as as an as a as sort of uh, an artifact of the past but we still when we introduce hierarchy to first year students we still trot out his idea of purity and pollution um as 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 the as the way that caste works as in the as a normative system. Now, and for that reason, um, Dumont, uh, of course, who's the most famous theorist associated with the theorization of the purity and pollution model, he is the book's central sort of love-hate theorist. Um, and uh, so I use his general um, theory of value in a sense to argue against his particular theory of Indian um uh, hierarchy. Um, so what uh, what I take from Dumont is very, very significant, and this is a point he made, um, but which often gets lost in discussion of, of, of um, hierarchy in general and of his work, is that um, is the difference between hierarchy and inequality. Right. So we think if, if you ask someone, you know, what is the opposite of hierarchy, they'll say equality. Um, what Dumont um, suggested, and I carry on in the book arguing, is that the opposite of hierarchy is inequality rather than equality. And the distinction is this. Um, both 
inequality and hierarchy are value judgments. They're not descriptions of freestanding fact. Uh, when we say that there's um, racial inequality or wealth inequality, we make a judgment that there, there are um, um, qualities or possessions of people that we value, and they have different amounts of them different colors of skin, different amounts of wealth, different amounts of education, and so on. So when we say inequality, we don't just observe the fact that someone has different amounts of wealth or different skin color, but we make a judgment that that's a bad thing, that it's, that it's perceived that way. Now, um, if you take all um, disparities as a bad thing, you can't possibly see how people can seek a good life and how they can value disparity as a social good, which for which um, the I use the gloss hierarchy. It's very imperfect. It has a peculiar history, and uh, arguably this is not a very useful word to use. But I've stuck to it for a number of reasons. Um, but when we talk of hierarchy, we talk about valuing non-equal relations. Um, and of course, there are different reasons for valuing non-equal relations. And what I argue in the book is that um, an unequal relation of any kind um, in the social context where I found myself was valued because it um, instantiated care, attachment through um, a fundamental social condition of um, inequality. Um, so. A simple way to imagine how this works, um, and this works throughout societies, not just in the Indian um, case, is to imagine a parent-child relationship. So in European societies and in Euro-American societies, people of all kinds of different persuasions, Republicans, Democrats, um, conservative, liberal, whatever, they value the parent-child relation. And they know it to be a fundamentally unequal one. But they also see that the inequality is also a social good inside this relation. So children are not equal to their parents in their legal rights, in their economic capacity, in their physical um, preparedness, and so on and so forth, right? But it's not seen as a bad thing. So if you were to explain to an alien who's just landed on Earth what, you know, what what is a parent-child relationship, it would be very unhelpful to tell them that it's an unequal relationship, right? <laughs> Although that is, you know, that is true, <laughs> um, right? And um, so so if we are to understand why people are seeking after patrons, why they're looking for hierarchical relations, often to, be, to find themselves in the subordinate role, it's precisely to find um, attachment and care that emanates from people above um, through, through relations that are asymmetrical and therefore are, are much better suited for care, protection and uh, mutual dependence. No, I yeah, that that part was so interesting in your book and sort of forces us to move beyond these ideas of democracy as this crystallized, idealized model, which has no room for inequality when so much of the political theory in that context has been to prove precisely. And I think this idea of looking at hierarchy in this sort of novel manner sort of helps us also... Uh, like, is are these really binaries? Or, or like you said, the parent-child relationship is 
if not universal, is practiced across political genres and, 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 and social spaces. So it's really interesting the way that we are forced to sort of reimagine some of Western liberal relations that are born out of equality. Yeah. Well, look at the reasons that people standardly give for voting for Trump in the United States. They're not, um, well, they work through a similar logic of care and protection by someone who's very much unlike you. Right. So this is the heartland of uh, liberal egalitarianism we're talking about. And in this heartland, not in rural Rajasthan, not in the backwaters of traditional so-called traditional India, but rather in the progressive American um, heartlands, uh, people wanted, you know, when, when liberal commentators wondered why people voted for poor people voted for somebody who's, you know, who sat in a golden tower, quite literally, they couldn't imagine that these people voted for him precisely because he was not poor, he beca- precisely because he wasn't unlike them, precisely because he was more capable, um, um, better enabled, at least in their fantasies or imagination, um, of, of doing, of looking after them. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So closely related then to this idea of care, which I think you wonderfully sort of just talked about in terms of patronage and, and, and everything, the state becomes a peculiar, which is quite fragmented. It's not one thing, right? It's very different things in different contexts. The police are different from the um, state representatives and, and so on and so forth. And then there are NGOs, which are not necessarily the state, but but yeah, it, it, there are these different sort of sites of power slash care slash, which some of them are rejected, some of them are not. And there's a peculiar relationship that uh, your interlocutors in particular, the conjures in particular, share with the state. And how does that sort of fit in? Uh, or or what, what is that peculiarity, if you could just talk about that a little bit? So as you just said, uh, rightly, the, the state doesn't present itself uh, as, a, as a monolith, um, as an imaginary monolith, nor does it do that pretty much anywhere in the world. I mean, I think there are some people in the world who imagine the state as a sort of unified machinery, but most people who actually encounter and deal with it um, close up experience it as a rather fragmentary um, and very fragmentary um, social entity and institutional entity. But this isn't to say that um, the idea of the state doesn't play a very, very important role. It gives a certain legitimacy. The uniform and, and the badge of a policeman gives you a, a certain protection that um, whoever you are um, dif- differentiates you from um, a bandit who may be involved in very similar kinds of things to a policeman, right? And so what I show actually is... Um, so the conjurers uh, deal with the state mostly through uh, their interactions with policemen and lawyers or advocates um, in India. Uh, the most frequent relations are with policemen with whom they um, are sort of involved in one business um, in the sense that the police give them protection um, from they, they write off arrest warrants and so on for a share of their booty. Um, also, when I was there, I um, I came to admire the policemen 
tremendously, despite watching them work with conjurers, um, because, of course, the policemen have a terrible reputation pretty much everywhere. Um, but in rural Rajasthan, they're drastically underpaid, understaffed, undertrained, and they do incredibly difficult work. And it is difficult to imagine where they would get money to feed their families while also doing a 24-hour job if they weren't doing what they were doing with the conjurers and others. In any case, um, what's really interesting here is um, the history of the conjurers moving from being patronized um, during the colonial period and before it by local um, landed elites, by the Rajputs, by the aristocracy. Um, and when that was the system, the conjurers um, mostly burgled um, outside their patrons' territories. So they would go abroad and they would uh, raid the territories of their patrons' um, enemies. Whereas now that system has reversed. They have become the patrons of policemen. And what that means is that they steal inside their jurisdictions where they have the protection of their uh, police officers. But it also means that their immediate neighbors are most intensely subjected to their raids, which, of course, creates the condition for intense violence, including pogroms. So the village I lived in was, um, was subject to a massive pogrom two decades before my arrival there. Um, but they're frequent murders of conjures precisely because the relations are so hot um, and so localized. Um, now, um, it's really difficult to, um, to talk about how people relate to the state because most people, in the way that they do actually relate and in their lexicon, whether it's in Britain or the United States or in Rajasthan, um, they relate to the government. And they talk of the government rather than the state, right? And whichever branch of the government, so imagined, um, they deal with, um, I think that's a more precise sort of locus of, of inquiry. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that was really interesting of this shift from um, robbing and outside and, and, and inside. And then, yeah, the, the, those were very interesting and then, I think you get into it. There's a lot more detail in your text than about like how different age groups and different uh, sects or, or different sort of subcasts within, they have different relationships, right? It's not a monolithic relationship. Even not all conjurers will share the same relationship with this. Well, yes. Um, what is really significant, um, and you've just reminded me of this, is that um, the conjure community, the localized conjure community that I um, describe in the book, um, has reproduced in its social structure, in its structure of clans and marriages, the um, structure of the state police um, um, office. So, uh, and this this again reproduces this idea of patronage as the fundamental structuring principle of social life, where the uh, patron institution is imprinted into the social um, frame of, of country. I mean, it, it, it affects whom they marry and um, how far they travel for marriage and so on, um, a system that reproduces the way that local police stations are organized, which is extraordinary because on the one hand, conjurers are the state's outsiders, but they are most intimately involved in its um, structuring where you know the the organization of the police and the organization of a conjure family are identical. 
right? No, I, I found that absolutely fascinating. And, and just in terms of adding to political theory and how hierarchy is such a crucial concept and you face this in your daily, if you've gone to any government office in, 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 uh, in, in any part of India, you know how important any kind of uh, patronage over there is. So like, sir, please, sir, please. It's 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 really it it really comes in in these innocuous ways as well. It's not necessarily just this grand idea of a hierarchy from a distance, but would we, we do it? Everybody does it. It's not just happening in one sort of section of. Uh, and Absolutely, that's what this is as much uh, the frame for the way that people relate in elite um, households in Bombay and Delhi as it is in rural Rajasthan. So, in a sense, it's a pity that this book happens to you know its heroes are in a rural um, part of a state that has the reputation and an unfair reputation of being the most sort of traditional backwater of India. Um, but it is also, of course, something that uh, pervades um, social life. And the point of the book is not to uh, point this out so as to cringe. It's the opposite. It's to stop cringing at it and to start looking at it with eyes wide open and to start seeing it as a viable um, living framework through which people actually imagine better lives and and live them well and with ambition not you know stuckness of a hierarchical permafrost <laughs> no, that, that, yeah I, I agree and it's it's important to think of these things with with seriousness and not just be like we need to discard this and put this to the side and that's yeah. something it's not an embarrassment although it's for the sort of globalized um yep. middle class it often is yeah right right um this I mean, this is sort of shifting gears a little bit, but if conjures have a very specific reputation um, within, and, and you you speak about this at, at different points in the book, is like they're perceived as these mysterious people. Nobody knows where they go and where uh, this one particular conversation that you have uh, with some Rajput friends, it's like, oh, we don't know. They just come and they go and you don't know when they go to jail and then when they come out. And and conjures themselves sort of take part in this, perpetuating this reputation of like, there's a secret language which you point out is very easily decodable. But the idea is that there is a secret language, right? And and so what does this sort of do for uh, conjures in particular? How does this praise them? Because it's different from how you would think about Dalits, right? And, and, and say... Uh, sweepers or, or, or how do you how does this different sort of take on on the conjures like this mysterious people does that is that becoming the source of some kind of um what what does this reputation do for them yeah so conjures and lots of other communities across india like them um have a peculiar place in socio-political life insofar as they act as um negotiators of conflict. I mean, that's their chief uh, role in the political economy of of India, and, and you know, it's carrying on today. But it's been historically recorded um, to have the system has um, gone on for a very long time. Now, um, there are negotiators of go-betweens who help to resolve disputes among people who are prevented by the same hierarchical rules from communicating directly with one another. So one example I give in the book is a conflict that arose in a, inside a family between um, the wife of a younger brother 
and an elder brother. And by the rules of hierarchical relations, the two couldn't talk to each other. So they couldn't confront each other um, head on or, or even speak, indeed. So they employed conjurers to negotiate this conflict. The, the younger brother and his wife stole five goats, I, I think it was, um, from the elder brother, and the elder brother wanted recompense. And the, my conjure host did um, get, the go- get the payment for the goats back by um, going back and forth and talking to one on the other side. Now, to perform that role, they have to be socially, they were neutral or outside. And this position of being hidden, secretive people, um, secret, um, magical even people, people who vanish, who are invisible, is very handy for this role. So it has a practical use. So on the one hand, the people who employ them, so and, and this position gives them access to some of the innermost sort of um, negotiations and communications of, of everyday life in inside families, inside sort of the dirt that isn't meant for public display. Um, now, uh, as um, so, so on the one hand, the people who employ them secretize them and tell you that, well, conjures you, you, you will never be able to um, access, you know, their lives, their villages and so on. But also conjures have obviously a vested interest in them in, in this and they are very actively mystify the, themselves. Indeed, they talk about having a secret language, uh, secret um, thieving practices and so on. Um, some of this is uh, actually substantiated by, by some of the things that I've observed, but the mystification in itself is a very important rhetorical um, point. Now, what this means, um, however, is that this uh, places conjures in a very vulnerable position. There are people who are outside. They have no rec- publicly recognized, although they have, of course, ties with patrons, these people who employ them, oftentimes it's generation in and generation out um, that they're employed by the same family. But these ties are not on public display and therefore they're not recognized. And so conjures remain conspicuously outside the order of asymmetrical hierarchic attachment, which gives place to people in local social life. So um, if they don't have patrons, they don't belong to anyone, there's no one to look after them, there's no sort of social parent, as it were. They're nobody's people, right? Because I argue that, hence, hence the title of the book, Nobody's People, because to, to be anyone at all is to belong to somebody, right? That's, that's the local logic. Um, and of course, therein lies their tragedy, is that they're unattached nobody's people. Um, killed... Um, as, as I said um, frequently. So what really this, this was one of the first things that I sort of realized, which got me thinking about hierarchy, indeed, was that I realized that um, the, the social tragedy of Kanjur's lives um, has to do not with them being very low in the hierarchy, um, in the hierarchy, but rather being outside it. And what they aspire to is to get into hierarchy rather than out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I have a couple more questions, uh, but one of these ideas, and, and this sort of, you, you you touched upon this right now, and, and but I found this quite interesting is that 
the services that they provide um, are necessary, right? Like you said, it had to be done that this confront that this confrontation could not happen, so it had to be mediated. And it's not even that. So there is a certain value associated with it, right? And it may not be respectable as some of the more impure quote unquote jobs. So. And 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 I guess you've answered this question now, so I guess it's moot. But like that's that's what they're aspiring to get into. But do they have like a vested interest in that? Does purian pollution then come back at all? Is the question that they don't speak about it? Does that it come back comes back as like, yeah, at least it's not impure, so we don't need to speak about it in those terms. Is and and hence you get to separate yourself from other like untouchable and those outside the hierarchy. Is do they have a vested interest in then? Um, um, well, people sometimes will speak of conjures as dirty, um, and dirty is um, it's not quite polluted in the same sort of ritual sense. It's just a way to speak of someone um, in a derogatory sense. What's really interesting, and perhaps this departs a little bit from your question, but what's really interesting about their position is not only that they're go-betweens, but the very business of robbery, which has historically been a central part, raiding and robbery have been central to rulership and kingship. So communities like Conjures, but most famously perhaps the South Indian Kalars, have been uh, um, very uh, distinctive insofar as their um, trade, the raiding trade, places them in society in a, in a much more mobile, fluid um, role in society. They're sort of free radicals that, on the one hand, they can be, um, they have a niche, sort of an economic niche, um, a social niche, where, which the, the countries I work with occupy now, which is um, behind the scenes, very marginal um, go-betweens. But if they succeed in acquiring land and wealth and raiding successfully, they have been known historically to have risen to the status of kings. So the Kalars have been both robbers and kings and have moved between extreme high and extreme low from being sort of totally external to being the super patrons of a given area, right? And this also just, um, these communities uh, show um, something that is more generally true of South Asian society, that it's been extremely mobile and that the history of caste is a history of movement, um, which of course is is not a sort of intuitive idea to the student of traditional so-called um, Indian society, but of course this rapid movement from bandits, outlaws, um, you know, robbers who, who, who are hiding in the jungle to kings um, is exemplified very well here. It's just an extreme case of something that's been true, I think, you know, and, and since our theme is movement, I think it's a very salient point. No, I did find that quite valuable of thinking of caste as as an ever-changing thing rather than like class is the one that where you have all the movement and mobility and caste is where the fixity lies. But that's, but that's right. Yes. But yeah. um, what what we sort of um I in, in the book in one of the chapters I trace the history of um the people who came to be known as conjurers and the very different positions that they have occupied. Um, and what that really shows is that a caste name is um, a sort of fixed spot 
that itself also moves in in the way that it's sort of uh, imagined and and judged socially, but also it's it's a it's a box that's filled and emptied all the time. It's an imaginary box, so it's not uh, at all a fixed um, group of people. Right, right. That's it's a point yeah. that has been made, but I think insufficiently in the studies of caste. Um, yeah, yeah. And even in like general discourse, it's such a fixed thing as like you have to be belonging to this to be able to avail that service. So means you've always been that oppressed and you've always been that. And then there's no like it's an people have. Yeah. People imagine different kinds of relationships and and they make those things happen in different ways. And and that's what I, I, I yeah, I really found that quite valuable about your book is like how to think of. It's 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 full of like all these creative ways of moving around and 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 not just like you said aspiration like upwards but like oblique ways and and like sideways and the multiple ways in which you can move with with caste and and I found that quite valuable uh, to think with. Yeah. Um, Thank you. This last question is about I, I really like this chapter on on political patronage and and you it, it's really interesting how people will go out and it's very it's a very it's a very conscious, intentional um, decision of who you choose to associate with. Like, even if, pe- if people are being given free food at the time of elections, like it's very people very consciously choose. Like, this is where I need to be seen doing something, and this is where I don't need to be seen, but I can do it. But and this comes through in your distinction between gift and bribe, and I found that quite interesting. Is like it's not necessarily a straightforward relationship between like, oh, I can get these many people if I just throw this sort of massive uh, party or whatever. But like, if I give this this much, if I give something, I'll necessarily get it. But there's the whole politics of being seen and not being seen doing doing something, and the gift and bribe. If you could just talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, You must be thinking about an episode I describe in the book where um, in the heat of the pre-electoral campaign, um, some party workers came to a friend's house in the the night and shuffled some money into into their hands, and there was a... There was a debate between him and his wife about whether to take the money or not. Um, And in this debate, it became apparent that uh, while political commentators, uh, political scientists especially, tend to treat all donations, electoral donations, as as an attempt to purchase a vote, right, a bribe, um, in... uh, in in the field, what I saw was that uh, people made a very clear distinction between um, gifts and bribes. Um, and um, there was a very clear moral line drawn between the two. And indeed, um, it was marked by public visibility or hiddenness. And uh, the difference was really that a bribe was something that you saw. Um, the bribe is something that a politician gave in the hope of having a one-off transfer. I give you money, you give me your vote. End of um, you know a quick trans, a, a commercial transaction, and that uh, didn't oblige you to anything at all. So that was the argument that my friend's wife made. She said, "Well, these people came and gave us money in the middle of the night. They think they can buy our votes. Well, I'll take the money, but this is not a." moral transaction this doesn't oblige me to anything so i can go and vote for whomever i want right um she was um a a woman who 
operated mostly in the domestic space, so it didn't affect her reputation. But because her husband knew that he, these people would tell others that uh, they had given him um, the, the money, um, that obliged him to um, to reciprocate. And he didn't want to vote for, for the BJP in this case. Um, he was a congressman. And uh, and so because he was a he had a public presence in the town, um, that um, that created a moral conflict, really. Um, and uh, but gifts, which are things or promises, indeed promises to protect and provide, very much in this idiom that I've seen sort of pervasively and described in the book, um, they, uh, when publicly acknowledged, are um, not about a one-off transaction. They're about a promise to um, to look after one's people. Um, and a gift of, you know, sari or alcohol or or it can be a word or, you know, it doesn't have to be a material thing. They're seen not as um, a, a, something you buy <laughs> a vote with, but on the contrary, as a promise of um, of care. Right. And they're seen as a moral thing and as a, as a, as a moral contract, let's say, um, which is a very sound basis for creating a political relationship between a representative and uh, and their constituent. Right, right. No, I found that, yeah, it was quite interested, and we haven't gotten into that, but like this idea of claim making that happens by association and not necessarily something that's given. I found that actually quite interested, interesting thinking through my own work of like, I, I look at intimate labor. So it's like there are certain rights that are afforded to you by association in some ways and and there's particular kinds of association so your intimacies with people in certain ways will afford you and this there's no rule book and the marxist conception will be like oh it is the amount of labor that you do that gives you the rights over stuff or is it like everybody's equal and like you do your job and and it's given like labor rights that's how theories of labor rights operate but in a sense no that's not how it operates at all people make all kinds of claims outside of political um or even within political spaces is like that doesn't don't necessarily uh, operate through this idea of given rights, right? Or, or that's what is written. So that's how it's going to be. And I found that quite interesting um, in your text as well. Um, I think it's also very important to note that um, that the sort of normative order I describe isn't a description of a good life. <laughs> um, that it's a it's a normative horizon which very much doesn't um, uh, doesn't accord with how things actually are. And people complain about the lack of of, of um, accordance of life with with the norm um, very bitterly and very frequently. And um, I think that it's it's also really important to understand that this is a very fragile order. Right, that um, the order of asymmetrical relations, where some people have more, more power, more money, more um, connections, more capacity of all kinds, more political um, energies, um, and others have less. Um, it rests on uh, on. It has some very fragile mechanisms that hold it together and that make it possible, and namely um, both. Parties, both the subordinates and the superordinates, 
um, need to be vulnerable to each other. They need to be dependent on one another. And um, in Indian history, there's an extraordinary um, uh, ritual, economic, and uh, socio-political system, which have been created over long stretches of time, that have ensured that um, superordinates are vulnerable to ordinate to to subordinates, because subordinates are always going to be vulnerable to superordinates. But how do you make a superior a superordinate vulnerable? So, of course, the ritual, the Hindu ritual system, is one such. Um, um, way of doing so. So when a Brahmin can't remove uh, a carrion of an animal from the village, they simply cannot do it or they stop being Brahmins. Then, uh, then um, Chamars have a really good lever for, for asking to, for wages to be raised, right? So for instance, the, the, the success, the historical success of Chamars as um, a, and their historical mobility, right? They have been at the forefront of Dalit assertion for the last hundred years at least, has in great part been connected to the fact that their trade is so intensely ritualized that it's um, that it makes their superordinates very, very much dependent on them actually continuing to perform that labor, right? Um, so of course, systems of taxation and, you know, intricate political systems have also made kings dependent on their subjects in, in Indian history. And that relationship has been severely severed under uh, British administration, which made, as we well know, um, Rajputs, uh, royals and aristocrats, um, pensioners of, uh, dependent on the, on the Raj, pensioners of the Raj for, for the most part, and not dependents of their subordinates as, as kings very substantially previously were. Um, now in the, um, current, um, in the contemporary political context, this is very important because um, the democratic order has once again made superordinates um, systematically vulnerable to their subordinates who can vote against them. And these subordinates have proven extremely um, active and they have, you know, this is not Putin's democracy. This is, uh, you vote Indira Gandhi in, you vote her out, you vote her in, you, um, and so on. You And this has carried on, you know, um, incumbency being um, a problem <laughs> for for um, uh, politicians is a very, very sig- signal of a strong democracy where people are discontent and they're happy to remove their superordinates. So superordinates are very much dependent on them, but when a system starts to make them less dependent on their subordinates, that's when we run into serious trouble and hierarchy turns into inequality and superordinates become superiors um, who then are at um, freedom to do whatever they wish to those with less. Right, right. Um, thank you so much. All, the, all of that was lovely. It was wonderful uh, being able to talk to you about this rich, rich text. Um, yeah. And I'd just like to thank uh, Dr. Piliavsky for joining us for and with all of her wonderful insights. Once again, I am Lakshata Malik and the discussion of Nobody's People published by Stanford University Press in 2020 has been brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Lakshata. Mm-hmm.